0: What do the scriptures principally teach? And what they teach is what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now this becomes a little bit of a problem today. And for young people, you may not, especially the the very young, you may not understand all that goes on with people trying to figure out who God is. But in the day in which we live, a lot of people have made a God of their own and they will even tell you something like this. If you tell them about the God of the Bible, they will say, well, that's okay for you, that's how you understand God, but I understand him very differently. And they will make up a God of their own who's, in their interpretation, oftentimes appeals to a dimension of life that is based upon being happy. Our God wants us to be holy. And in the midst of our holiness, he brings joy. The happiness for many depends upon their circumstances of life. For believers, the joy that we have is because of our relationship with our Creator through Jesus Christ who gives us forgiveness of sins and grants to us freely the gift of life. And so the God that we worship is not a God that we conjure up in our own thinking, but it's a God who tells us who he is in his word. And every Sunday that we get together, part of our purpose is to understand God more completely More accurately, so that we might live more pleasing lives to Him. The second part of that answer is and what duty God requires of man? We want to make clear no man, by acting out any duty, earns God's favor. Our merit before God is based upon one thing, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ by accepting Him in His death, His burial and his resurrection for our sins, trusting in him for our forgiveness and our life, and then having received the gift of eternal life, and having been declared righteous by the judge, now we live in relationship to a father, our father who art in heaven, and there are things we can do to please our Father, and there are things that we can do to displease Him. What things displease Him? The things that the Bible tells us displease Him. What things please Him? The things that the Bible tells us please Him. And so we embrace what the Bible teaches, not only to know who God is, but also to know how we are supposed to live in order to please our Heavenly Father, with whom we already have a relationship if we have trusted Jesus as our Savior. Would you open your Bibles to Romans, the first chapter? On August the 30th of 1980, I took Deborah Kruger to be my wife, and she took me to be her husband. And the truth is, nothing has ever been the same since. When you take an individual to be your mate, there are wonderful joys that come along with that. There is the development of two lives being brought together in one. There is the anticipation of what the future may hold with the idea that by the grace of God we will be able to grow on together, grow old together. And then there are a variety of other benefits that come along with this new relationship that you enjoy as husband and wife. But then there are also changes in responsibility that come along as well. There, the, let me put it this way. Those responsibilities can either be accepted or rejected. If they are rejected, there is a price to pay if those responsibilities are accepted, what you find is that there is a developing richness of the relationship. And you realize that along with all of the privileges, the responsibilities that accompany those privileges are really part of making the privileges all that they are intended to be by God who created marriage between a husband and a wife. And when you accept that, you find that that things really get better along the way. Now, that's not to say there aren't hard times in marriage. There always are going to be. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be conflicts. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be valleys. But you you work through those by accepting the responsibilities that have come along with the wonderful privileges that you experience at the very heights of all of the benefits, the joy and the fulfillment and the anticipation and all of those things that come along. When you enter that relationship, that's exactly what happens. Paul, in Romans, is telling us this, that there is a wonderful relationship that develops the moment you accept Christ as your Savior, and he is writing to the church at Rome, he is writing to believers at Rome who have enjoyed the benefits that come along with accepting Christ. Those benefits include having all of our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, so that there is therefore now, and and Paul's going to say this later on in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, to those who have embraced Christ as their Savior, their sins have been forgiven, and they have been given freely the gift of eternal life which is not merely a duration of being in heaven forever, but it's a whole new quality of life that begins at the moment you trust Christ. The Bible says that when we trust Christ, we receive a new life. It's regeneration, the spiritual dimension of our being is brought to life, where before it was dead in trespasses and sins, but now we're given life. And then we're told this, that we have been given everything we need for lives of life and godliness. So he has equipped us with everything we need to get through this life, regardless of how difficult it might be at times, and it will be. He never said, we're in heaven now heaven is coming. Right now, we are in a world that is beset by sin, that is beset by conflict, that is beset by the horrible behavior of individuals towards others, by disease, by all sorts of things that are are very negative, that are going to be left behind one day, but they're not left behind yet. We're still here. And so we look at those benefits, and then there are many, many more. We're we're given the Holy Spirit of God to be our comforter, to be our teacher, to be our guide. We have the the scriptures that give us direction for life, and as we just looked at a moment ago in the catechism, that, that tell us who God is and the way he wants us to live here on earth while we are here. And all of these benefits come. But just as with a marriage relationship, along with the benefits responsibilities and when you embrace the righteousness that is from God through faith in Christ you embrace those same responsibilities as Paul outlines for his life in those four verses that we read earlier if you will look with me once again back to the first chapter the 14th verse we begin to see this, that Paul is speaking to the believers and he says now this, having enjoyed all of these benefits that are in Christ, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So when you embrace Christ as your Savior, One of the obligations that comes along, or I should say one of the things that you embrace as well, is the obligation that comes along with knowing Christ as Savior. And he tells us exactly what that obligation is. If you have received life in Christ, you are to be a reproducer. You are to tell others about Christ so that they in turn can come to faith and to a saving knowledge of Christ and enjoy the same benefits that you enjoy. And he tells us that there is a process that is is engaged in, that is unfolding in his day. And here's what he says. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise. And if you drop down to verse 16, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So God had a a plan that included an organizational direction for the giving of the gospel. If you remember, God's purpose in working with Israel, in working with the Jews, was to set aside a people for himself who would testify to the reality of who he was. The people lived in a day of polytheism and and paganism, and here were the Israelites who introduced a whole new concept that there is really only one God. And they were to communicate who that God was, that he was a holy God, a righteous God. He was a judge. He was a God who cared for his people. And they were to communicate that through their lives. But what happened was, as time went on, they began to forget their God. And they went through a series of difficulties. And we read about those as we go through the Old Testament. We read about the times of the judges and the awful conditions that existed then. We read about the times when the kingdom was set up and and Solomon or pardon me and Saul beginning this process of kings and David and then Solomon and then under under the the son of Solomon who was Rehoboam there is a division in the kingdom and we find that both northern kingdom and southern kingdom both rebelled against God and they rejected him and They began to worship idols and they they became involved in the same practices that the people around them were involved in to whom they were supposed to be a testimony and they were supposed to be a cleansing force in those lives of those people. And it went just the opposite. And so God set them aside for a time and began his work through the church. But the church was to understand something. That the gospel message still was to be given to the Jews. And that's why Paul said in verse 16 that it goes first to the Jews. Why? Because they were the ones through whom the covenants had been given. The prophecies had come through them. They were the ones to whom God has made promises for their future. And those promises are still going to be fulfilled. But for a time, they're set aside, so they need to hear the gospel first. That was done. As you go through the book of Acts, you'll recognize that the Jews had a hard time understanding that the gospel, even the believing Jews, had a hard time understanding that the gospel was going to be going to the Gentiles as well. And so when when Peter went to Cornelius, this was kind of a big deal because Cornelius was a Gentile. But what had been happening all the way to that time was the gospel was being proclaimed over and over and over again to the Jews. And so... Israel, as a people, had the gospel presented to them, and they continued to reject it. That dimension of going to the Jews first has been fulfilled. The process that we go through as followers of Christ is no longer chronologically subject to going to the Jews first, but If we have the privilege of telling Jews, Jewish individuals, about Christ, we take that opportunity. But today, there's no difference. I want you to look back at chapter 10, and just look at two verses there, right there in the book of Romans. Turn back a couple pages to chapter 10, and you're going to see here in verses 11 and 12, the new standard, so to speak. For the Scripture says... Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Well, now Paul is in a day in which the Jews are receiving the gospel first, but they now have received it. And so he says, now I've become a debtor, not merely to the Jew, but... To the Greek. And, to, and then, then he uses the word barbarian. And then he says, to the wise and to the unwise. So I want you to look at that. When we talk about going to the Greek, why would he make a distinction of the Greeks? Well, the Greeks became very important in the issue of spreading the gospel because the Greek language was the language in which the majority of the New Testament was written. Some of it was written in Aramaic, but Greek became the primary language language through which the message that God was delivering was being written. And there was a culture that had developed, even though it was in the Roman Empire, the Greek culture had been embraced even by many of the Jews. The uh, Sadducees had fully embraced the Greek culture. And that's why, in some cases, they were at odds with other segments of, of the Israelites. Anyway, uh, th- this Greek culture was a refined culture. It was uh, one that, that was very committed to knowledge, to study, to philosophies. And Paul says this, to those people, I am a debtor. I owe the gospel to the people of the culture in which I live. But then he said, I also owe the gospel To barbarians. Now, when you hear barbarian, do you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger? Conan the barbarian, you know, he eats his meat and walks around in a loincloth and shows off his muscles. That is not what is meant here. When the word barbarian is translated, and in some of your Bibles it it may be translated non-Greeks, it is people who had not embraced that culture who lived in other lands but they were not they were not influenced by the culture of the greek language of the greek philosophies of the things that made the culture of greece permeate most of the Roman Empire, but not all of it. And there were those who lived outside the Roman Empire. And here's what the apostle says. He says, you know what? Because of the benefits that I have in Christ, I have become obligated. My obligation is to take the message of the gospel to the Greeks, my culture. It's also to take it to the non-Greeks, everyone that dwells outside of the culture that I enjoy. I am to take it to the wise people who, by their own estimation, had really put things together. They, they philosophically had per, uh, perhaps embraced some of uh, Aristotle's philosophies, Plato's philosophy. They, they embraced those things, and they were wise in their own eyes. They, they were people who would say something like this. Religion is for the weak. It's for people who don't have the strength and the fortitude within themselves to deal with the issues of life, but they need something to fall back on. And that philosophy still exists today. Yeah. Oh, you're a Christian? You're weak. You can't deal with the issues of life. <laughs> Ask the Christians in the Middle East how weak they are. Anyway, that's a whole nother area. Paul says, though there will not be many wise who believe, because they are all caught up in their own wisdom, some will. And he says, I owe the gospel to them. And then he says, I also owe it to the unwise, because the unwise are being condemned in the simplicity of their lives. Oh, don't bog me down with religious stuff. You know what? It's hard enough just to get through the day, to make a living, to take care of my family, to enjoy somewhat of what life has to offer, and they are going to hell in the simplicity of their thinking. And Paul says, you know what? I owe the gospel to them too. So when you come to the conclusion of all of this, what do you figure out? Paul says, I owe it to everybody. With whom do I share my faith in Christ? To the Jew first, that's been done. To the Greek, to the non-Greek, to the wise, to the unwise, that's pretty much everybody. And that obligation that embraced Paul embraces us who will carry the gospel to the lost. Isn't that the job of missionaries? Isn't that the job of pastors? Yeah. But it's also the job, the privilege, of the sheep. Pastors don't reproduce sheep. Sheep reproduce sheep pastor happens to be a sheep too. But it's our responsibility and it's our obligation. If we enjoy the benefits of what we have in Christ, we have an obligation. In the next verse, he brings up a second element that really is a reflection of the motivation that keeps him going. He says, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. This obligation that he felt was motivated by a love that he had for Christ and for the people at Rome. He had never met them. He had never come across their paths, but he intended to get to them one day. And because he had heard so much about them, he realized, you know, the love that I have for Christ has been manifested towards you as well. And because of what Christ has done for me, I am motivated to give the gospel, even when I come to you and minister to you who are believers, there are many around you who are not. And so what motivates me is really found on several levels. The motivation comes because of the love of Christ. But Paul also recognizes this. He had been a recipient of God's grace. And the grace that God gives is available for all who will receive it. When we talk about his grace, what are we talking about? Some people say uh, this, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's that's a decent way to understand grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. To make it a little bit clearer, I would say this. The grace of God is the reflection of the love of God... "...to a fallen humanity that shows itself through the person of Christ to all who accept him as their Savior, so that they don't receive the judgment they are due, but they are freely given the gift of life and forgiveness." Isn't that much easier than God's riches at Christ's expense? (laughs) If you understand what God's riches at Christ's expense means, we're fine. It means that God gives us, and by the way, some people say, well, what's the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, which is hell. That's merciful. But His grace takes us beyond that, it gives us what we don't deserve. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to have eternal life. But God's grace, which is the outworking of His love, is given freely when I trust Jesus as my Savior. And so it's the grace of God that motivates. But I want to tell you, there's something else that should motivate us in, as well, and that is the need of the lost. People who do not know Christ as Savior are not in just a tough spot. They are in an absolutely desperate spot. There is no hope apart from Christ. There is a desire to live a life that would be righteous and good. And sometimes that's why people around us will live such good lives even though they're not believers. Do do any of you have neighbors that are really nice people? Yeah, we do. We have have neighbors. And, And I think some of our neighbors are believers in Christ, but I think some of them are not. But they're still really nice people. Why? Because in the back of people's minds, there is this belief. I really need to be good so that, for one, I can get along on a horizontal plane with the people around me. And, and, and maybe there's even more to that, because I'm being restrained by social mores. I'm being restrained by laws. Th- that comes into the picture. But I'm going to make this a little bit more simplistic. I, I want to be good so that if there is a God... He's going to look at me and say, boy, you were really good. And what they don't know is that God's word says, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. They're good to their neighbors, but there's nothing in them that will commend them to God. None of our good works will merit God's favor. But people around us think that's the way it's done. Haven't you heard people talk about the balance? If all the good that I do outweighs all the bad that I do, God will take me. Haven't you heard that? That, that's, That's what people believe. Well, first of all, what does your sin do before a holy God? It totally separates you from Him. Sin brings death. And the death that it brings is not merely that of the body, but it's also that of the spirit. So any good that we think we're doing before God isn't good at all because we're dead in our spirit. All it is is good to the people around us. And so when the unsaved person, the person who has never trusted Christ, stands before the judge and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Their cry will be, Well, didn't I do anything? uh, Didn't I do good things on earth? And the answer from the judge's point of view is no, you didn't. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and putrefying sores. Paul said, You know what? I am motivated because people out there who are really nice, who are really wonderful friends, good neighbors. You can count on them. If you need something, you just go next door and they're going to be right there to help you. He says, their situation is desperate. They are dead in trespasses and sins. They need a Savior. And apart from Christ, they have no hope. And so he says, the message itself is part of why I am motivated. And then he brings a third element where he talks about the nature of the message itself, which is this. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. You all know what the word gospel means. What does it mean? good news. That's what gospel means. He is saying this, I have a message that is so good it can reverse the eternal destiny of those who do not know Christ as Savior. It is a message that tells me this, the righteousness of God, what he demands as his holy standard is met at the cross of Christ So that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who deserve judgment, can receive my love and my forgiveness. What a message. A message of good news. Sometimes people get the idea that, oh, you Christians, you, you walk around all the time talking about judgment. Well, judgment is a very serious issue, and it's something that, that needs to be talked about. But I want to tell you, the greatest part of what we have is the good news of the gospel. Now, you can't leave out the judgment part, because God is holy. But you can't leave out the love of God that says this, a holy God who loves his creation provided for forgiveness and that forgiveness comes through Christ that's the good news he took your penalty he was buried we, we were singing earlier and and sometimes I wonder if people who do not know the Lord listen to the songs that we sing how confusing it must be when they read about the blood you know, you remember we were singing about that this morning. How, how confusing is it when you sing about the blood? Those of us who know Christ as Savior, we understand what we're talking about there. But oftentimes, people who don't know the Savior, they they don't know the language we use. So, so we must be very careful that we we communicate accurately. The blood is that part of Christ that was shed that caused Him ultimately, from the human point of view, to die. So that through his death, the shedding of his blood is what cleanses our sin, so that we look at the death of Christ and say, when he died, he provided for my forgiveness, for my cleansing, it's through the blood of Christ, another way of saying, through the death of Christ, he died for my sins, he was buried, and then the Bible tells us he rose again from the dead. And we're coming up to Easter, before real long. It'll be here before you know it. And we sing, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But quite honestly, I celebrate that every day. Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. That is good news! If the Savior had died and stayed in the grave, how good is that? We got another dead philosopher. Muhammad's in the grave and he's dead. And he's not coming back to life. I could go right through the list of them. They're all dead except Jesus. He's alive. And so we have a Savior that died for our sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, so that we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And Paul says, you know what? That motivates me. I have got a great message to share. When we come to the next verse, he introduces a whole nother thought. He is determined to get this message out, and he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ... For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul was very convinced that his responsibility was to go to Rome. Now, (coughs) pardon me. What was Rome? Rome was the seat of power. It was the seat of authority. It was the capital of the empire. It's where the legions marched from. It was the area where the leaders of the known world had stationed themselves to make decisions that would ultimately affect the whole known world at that time. It was the place of great cultural significance. It was a place of great wealth. It was a place of great influence. And Paul said, I can't wait to get there because I am so influential and I am powerful and I'm going to show them what's what, right? Do you know that Paul gives us a description of himself elsewhere in the scriptures? We'll, we'll get to it. Well, maybe we will. Um, and he gives a little bit of an identification of what he was like, and history also tells us a little bit about Paul. We are told that Paul was short, that he was bald, that he was really not that pleasant to look at. Paul himself says this, you talk about the authority of my sermons, but when I come to you, you say, he's not a good speaker. He's not articulate. He, he stumbles through things. And then on top of that, he's got a, a thorn in the flesh, which we don't know what it was specifically, but because of some evidence that we have, it very easily could have been an eye problem. Now, if it was, just imagine this, an oozing eye coming from a short, bald guy who's ugly, who can't speak well, And really has no influence. And he walks into Rome. And he says, I can't wait to get there. Because I am determined to give the gospel. And the power of the gospel is not found in me. It's found in Christ and his resurrection. Do you need to be afraid to take the gospel anywhere? If you got an invitation to meet with President Obama, I would hope that you would take whatever opportunity God gave to let him know that there is a Savior who died for him and rose again from the dead and can give him wisdom and life and influence for the cause of Christ. I I, I hope you would do that. Um, I hope you do it with your neighbor too. They're not quite as big a deal as President Obama. He says, I am not ashamed of this gospel because it is shameless. What is there in the gospel that would bring anyone to shame? Is it that Christ loved us? Are you ashamed of that? Is that he died for us? Are you ashamed of that? Is that he rose again from the dead? Are you ashamed of that? No, see, what happens is people ridicule individuals who give them the gospel, and then we get all uh, squirrely. And and, and I understand that. I, I know what it's like. We don't like to be ridiculed. We don't like people to think that we're holy rollers. Um, and if anybody rolls down this aisle today, I'm going to smack you. (laughs) We are not holy rollers, okay? We do not do that. We live righteous lives. We want to please the Lord. Um, Paul says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why? Because of what it can do, it has life-giving power. It can rescue you from the wages of sin. It can set you free from the bondage of sin. It can give you life. It can give you purpose. It can give you direction. And he says, the power of the gospel is life-giving. Why would I be ashamed of that? And then he says, in addition to that, not only is it life-giving, but it's transforming. It can take an addict and set him free. It can take an abortionist and forgive what he has done or she has done and give them new life that now defends the living. It can set you free from a heart of hatred and anger, it, it can set you free so that that which in you you consider to be weak can be made strong. That, that which is within you that is fearful can be made brave. And Paul says, that's the kind of message we have to preach It's also inclusive. Do you see that? It's for everybody. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. You know what I'm enjoying? I'm seeing our congregation become more um, What's the word I'm looking for? Diverse. When I first got here, I didn't see many folks who were not of Anglo origin. And now I look around and I'm delighted that we have people from a variety of different origins because the gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter your your race. It doesn't matter your station in life. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your influence. What matters is your relationship to Christ. And when you know Christ as Savior, you're my brother or, bro- brother or sister. Isn't that neat? And then we're going to be one in heaven. And down here, we still have problems. We've got to work through those problems. But in heaven, we're going to be one. I'm thrilled. Paul says it's for everyone. <sighs> Somebody just... Congratulated me last week, Greg, about trying to really be careful of time because Greg serves over in the nursery from time to time, right? Oh, kids' church, not the nursery. Yeah, they wouldn't let you, you'd scare the kids. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to really finish this up quickly because there are people working over there and they need a break. The final thing he says is this it brings revelation. It brings us a revelation of God's love. God has all the power he needs and would have every right to look at us and say, you've sinned against me, you have violated my holiness, I judge you for all eternity and give you no hope. He could have done that. But because he is not only a God of holiness and righteousness, he is a God of grace and mercy who genuinely loves people. And he allows us to be part of the process in bringing them to faith in Christ. Let's keep this straight. You and I do not win anybody to Jesus. You and I give the information. And it is God who brings them to himself through Christ. So let's not think for a moment that you and I get people saved. I hear that phrase over and over. And I realize, even in our community here, that is a phrase that seems, people seem to be comfortable with this. Um, I won them to Christ. Uh, what, what was the phrase I just used? What? Get people saved. Yeah. Oh, uh, you got to get out there and get people saved. You don't get anybody saved. Salvation is of the Lord. But you and I have the privilege to give the information that they will embrace and come to Christ as Savior. That's part of our obligation. So, he tells us, God's love is what we know about. God's requirement is that people have a righteousness equal with his own and that righteousness can only be received through faith in Christ as he imputes to us the righteousness of his Son as he lays upon Christ the sinfulness of our being. And finally, he tells us that we are responsible. In it, as the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What do I mean when I say we are responsible? From the human point of view, you and I, if we are to receive Christ as our Savior, must respond by accepting Him as our Savior through faith. I believe that I am condemned because of my sin. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe He was buried. I believe He rose again from the dead. I accept Him as my Savior. There is nothing magic about those words. There is no specific prayer that you pray to be saved. When you believe in Jesus, you can express it that way to him, but the belief comes from the heart. And listen, you know if God is working in your heart to say, you know what, what what this guy, what this raging maniac is saying is true. And I need that Savior. And I believe in Jesus. Now your responsibility is to respond in faith. And I call you to do that if you've never trusted Christ as Savior. I have the privilege of asking you, will you trust Christ and pass from death into life? And if you will, I promise you this, the new life that you are about to embark on will be the most exciting, thrilling, fulfilling life you could ever possibly live. But it may be tough. It may be tough. And so, the Lord says this. Oh, the part about from faith to faith. And by the way, I didn't mention this. Oh, there's so much. But look at the time. the The righteousness of God should be translated righteousness from God. Greek word ek from God. It is a righteousness that He imputes to those who will believe. And then, when you exercise faith in Christ, you exercise faith living for Christ from faith. To faith. Now, every day, I trust Him. I rely upon Him. I know He will not make any mistakes even when I think He's doing something wrong. I trust Him. From faith to faith. Let's stand. Father, we've had the privilege to open this portion of Your Word. Please take it and apply it to our hearts in whatever way is necessary for your glory. Amen. God bless.